Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Uh, yeah, 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 here I am. How you doing? Welcome to the program. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, <clears throat> so, my, yee, I just started by saying so. Damn it. I'd rather start saying damn it. Uh, without a doubt, the best story of the day <clears throat> is the story from an upstate New York uh, courtroom. Surely this thing is so viral by now that everybody knows of it. Um, in case you've missed it. It involves, a, it's a rather bizarre case. Uh, you do know where um, every once in a while you hear, although I remember the first time I heard, it was now a long time ago, of a child suing parents uh, for some <laughs> some reason. I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, oh my God, <clears throat> I can't imagine. Um, and then I was thinking, geez, I... I could have made a lot of money by suing my parents um, when I had this horrific, almost fatal bicycle accident when I was uh, six or seven uh, because they had bought me a bike that I was way too young to handle. It was a full-size bike with hand, bra hand brakes, not foot br no foot brakes. I was so into that bike, and on its maiden voyage, I almost killed myself because I, in fact, could not get my hands around and stop the bike. Um, and I suppose if I lived in, that was in the 50s, um, if I lived today, I can see somebody saying, now, it'll be a friendly suit, essentially, but you see, you sue your parents uh, for this, and you'll get a huge payout. I mean, you've the pain and suffering you've endured, the surgeries after the, um, and th then the fact that actually the surgeries led to certain treatments that resulted in you um, developing a tumor on your thyroid. Your thyroid was then later removed uh, when you first came to Pittsburgh, and then after that you became high risk for thyroid cancer, and then blah, 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 blah. So all because my parents did not do their due diligence in their parental responsibilities and gave me a bike which almost killed me. I could have sued them. But of course I didn't. But um, there is a case uh, from yesterday, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly, Cam these people live in Camelus, New York, near Syracuse. And actually, it was, I guess in this case, I got it a little bit wrong. It was the parents who brought the case. They are trying to evict their 30-year-old son from their house. Apparently, um, their son is a, a, a jerk beyond all. I mean, th this guy must be 
His name is Michael Rotondo. He's 30 years old. And his parents have had it. He lives in their house. He does not, he, he keeps a car in there. I, there's, you know, he just makes a mess. He doesn't speak to them. They sent him letters, even though he lives in the same house, that served as eviction orders uh, and demanding that he uh, get the hell out. Um, a letter they sent on in February says, Michael, here is $1,100 from us to you so that you can find a place to stay. Uh, and he, they also suggested that he get a job, that he move his broken car, uh, that, he, that he possibly sell some of his uh, weapons to make some money. Jeez, I don't know if I'd threaten a kid with weapons living in my house. I don't know. Just saying. Um, and he, the 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 30-year-old son, uh, represented himself in front of the uh, judge, <clears throat> and was thoroughly ob obnoxious. Uh, e even to the judge. He told the judge that he had the right to live in the house for six more months. Um, <clears throat> and the judge said that that was outrageous. And this jerk fires back at the judge and calling him outrageous. The judge, insisting the judge was wrong on points of law, uh, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the judge just flat out said, this is State Supreme Court Justice Donald Greenwood, said, I want you out of that house. So he lost. He's threatening, of course, not to leave and, in fact, to appeal the ruling. He told reporters after the proceeding that he's not ready to move out of his parents' house. He said there hadn't been any incidents with his parents. I know, yeah, granted, he said, I don't speak to him, but uh, I have my own bedroom. And I support myself, he says, through my business. And when reporters said, and what business is that? He said, it's my business. <laughs> it's not your business. Uh, during the proceedings, this jerk, oh, how did the judge not just, like, order him executed? That's I hereby, he could have just, you know, sort of done a presidential kind of thing. I hereby order you to be executed immediately. Um, according to the local newspaper, as... Rotondo's parents sat quietly in the court gallery. Rotondo appeared to crave the spotlight. At one point, the judge called him up to the bench, and Rotondo, noting that the microphones, 
placed by the media were on the lawyer's lectern, so he tried to approach the bench, taking the lectern with him. Wow. So he says he's going to do a repeal. Uh, people say this is like a movie I didn't see uh, called Failure to Launch, uh, starring Michael, I mean Matthew McConaughey. Um, but anyway, there he is. He's, he's a fully grown jerk. Michael Rotondo. Oh, my God. I feel for his parents. 30-year-old. All right, okay. Um, I have this feeling I'm not quite, I'm not quite here today. I, 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 my head's doesn't seem too sharp. Just saying, I can tell. I was cleaning out um, a box that had stuff in it yesterday. I came upon a box. I didn't know the stuff was in this box. You know how you think you're being so clever and you. You're organizing, so you put something in a box. There, I've got everything. And then you completely forget that that's where you put this stuff. So it, it's not important. I mean, I came upon this thing. I thought, geez, I wonder what's in there. I opened it up, and it was, excuse me, it was a collection of um, political buttons from over the years. And man, there were some really, I mean, wow. I I don't, I mean, I, I just think it's a real, you know, blast down memory lane. Um, blast down memory lane? Is that a, did I mix up two metaphors there? Blast from the past. <laughs> Walk down memory lane. Yeah, I did. I thought so. I told you. Some, there's, there, there's a few things not firing today. It's a little unsettling. But also in the box with that was a, um, there were like t ticket stubs from rock concerts. There was my, the little thing they give you when you vote. You know, there's a little thing that you voted. And um, there was one, and I thought, why would I keep this? And then I saw the date. November 4th, 2004, eight. <laughs> eight, eight, that's the date, Barack Obama. That's the only one I saved. Okay, so um, also in there were these yellowing, so I thought, okay, I'll share these with you because anything's better than talking about the tin pot dictator in the White House. Um, here are some, these are quotes from Napoleon Bonaparte. Can you think of a quote from Napoleon? I don't know why my right hand is cold. No, he did not say that. Here it is. This is so true. Napoleon Bonaparte said, History is a set of lies agreed upon. 
that's in keeping with, you know, the history is written by the winners. History is a set of lies agreed upon. Okay, yeah, that's what we're saying happened. It's Victor's writing history. He's aware of that. Another, uh, Robert Frost. These are probably pretty well known. A jury consists of 12 persons chosen to decide who has the better lawyer. I so hope that's not true, but I suspect often it is. And here's one from uh, actor, drunk, ladies' man, John Barrymore. It's his, defini his definition of sex. The thing that takes up the least amount of time and causes the most amount of trouble. Somehow all of those spoke to me at some point and I put them away and they yellowed in a little box, but this is my favorite. It's a little letter to the editor of the New York Times. I can tell it's the New York Times because of the, uh, the font. <laughs> and it's from a guy who's, some of whose books I have, a guy named Leo Rostin. And Leo Rostin um, wrote uh, books dictionaries about Yiddish. Um, it, one of his books is called, I think, the, jo the Joys of Yiddish, I believe. And, I mean, it is a hysterical book. I mean, the, he bothered to actually note the differences between schmuck and schmo and schmendrick and schlemiel and all of those things of what, what is what, because we use them incorrectly all too often. And, um, but Anyway, Leo Rostin was uh, writing because he was uh, responding to an article about how people, famous writers, um, writing apologetic letters about not having responded to somebody. I mean, as somebody myself who almost never begins, as a matter of fact, I have on my to-do list today, to write a note to a woman um, uh, that I should have written a month ago. And as with everything I ever write that's in a note, I will start with an apology about it being late. <laughs> that's just the way I roll. I never, ever, ever do things on time when it comes to that. Put it off, put it off, put it off. And then sometimes I'm so embarrassed because it's so late that I just let it go. Um, however, Leo Rostin responding to this article about how people, famous people, apologize, uh, said that I received this many years ago. Uh, from Groucho Marx. And it is just so... I have ripped this off, actually, I have to admit. Okay, so this is from Groucho Marx writing to uh, Leo Rostin. Dear Junior, please excuse me for not answering your letters sooner, but I have been so busy not answering letters lately 
that I have not been able to get around to not answering yours. Love, Groucho. <laughs> All right, that's it. <laughs> yes, I actually do write notes and stick them in envelopes and put stamps on them and stuff. Not very often and much uh, fewer times than I uh, than I have in the past. But I, you know, there's nothing like one. They're special to get, aren't they? Eh? Aren't they? Yeah. And all too often we we don't do that anymore when we should. Um. I just cut this out in a, you know, just sort of like New York Times today. Trump backs off demand that North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons. I'll tell you, the art of the deal. Here we have the guy. We are watching him now, right, with uh, his brilliant statecraft uh, in regard to China, in regard to uh, North Korea, and it is so... It is, you know, it's like it's cringe, it's cringeworthy. It's difficult to watch how he's being played. Oh my God! Oh my God! And then there's that metal. Did you know they made metals? I guess what? Because they make money because they're people who collect these metals. The metal, the profiles of our dear leader and the supreme dictator, leader, murderer of North Korea staring at each other across this, uh, yeah, silver expanse. Have you seen that? Who knew? Uh, it turns out there's a, a White House communications agency, and it's a military unit. Did you ever know that? I think this is unnecessary. I I do not want my tax dollars going to a White House communications agency that is a military unit that does things like come up with commemorative coins for summits that haven't occurred and might not and who while doing them identifies the uh the the leader of uh perhaps the most repressive regime currently in the uh on the earth as the supreme leader Kim Jong-un. And a lot of people who know uh, Korean uh, history and who serve as analysts, um, uh, one of the more famous ones, who, by the way, became famous himself. I, you won't know his name, but you'll know, <laughs> you'll know the, um, the viral little uh, video that introduced him to all of us, or more clearly introduced his delightful uh, children uh, to us. This is the guy who is was a uh, you know a, he's a Korean analyst. I, he's not Korean himself. He's a Brit. His name's Robert Kelly, and um, he was giving an interview on the with the BBC from his office in his home apparently. And talking about, you know, serious matters when, you'll recall, his daughter <laughs> comes walking in. And 
He's like still, uh, he's trying to like bat the, the cute little kid who's like dancing. And then, and then, just to put the cherry on top, some little deranged, uh, like uh, 18-month-old in one of those circular, you know, little chairs comes careening in as well. And it was just, it was so funny. So, and then his wife on her hands and knees trying to stay out of the camera range comes crawling in and pulling these kids back. It was, you know, so wonderful. Um, anyway, this guy uh, was so appalled at, uh, well, he's so appalled at everything that Donald Trump is doing in regard to North Korea. But he, when he saw the coin, the commemorative coin that has been issued, uh, by the ever-so-important White House Communications Agency. Um, he said this. He, he said it was just gross. And he said it plays into what Kim is all about, fostering a personality cult. But, of course, that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing as well. The fostering a personality cult. It's what despots do. So the two despots uh, staring at each other in this commemorative coin. But uh, I want to thank uh, Robert Kelly uh, over there for speaking up just so we could revisit that uh, wonderful moment when we came to know him and his family. Well, this is good. I've wasted one-third of the show and have yet to really say much of anything. That's just my mood. Uh, and the fact that it is my mood, let's go to the old bit of the day. Um, however, I mean, I bet you think it's going to be Philip Roth. It's not. I mean, although Philip Roth died, yes. And, man, he wrote a ton of books. I don't know how many of them you read. Believe it or not, I never read Portnoy's Complaint. Um, the book I read of his, and I'll be damned if I can, is it, was it The Plot Against America? He wrote such a great book, and I think it should be read right now, right now, immediately. And it was a novel about Lindbergh, historical novel about Lindbergh um, in the 30s who was, if you know, an admirer of Adolf Hitler. Yeah, our beautiful, blonde, aviating boy. He was pretty much a fascist. And he, um, in this book, he has him becoming president of the United States. I think that's the name of it. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, 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 I am describing a book that he wrote. <laughs> and damn it! And the impact, what's going on here? And the, never mind, just falling apart here. Uh, the uh, impact of um, fascism uh, come to uh, America prior to World War II. So, of course, we didn't get into the war in this novel on, against the Germans. And it is a chilling, harrowing, and totally believable 
about how easily America could have um, gone the other way. And at a time when we are going the other way. I really do recommend it, even if I haven't given you the right title. But I think that's the title. Anyway, he wrote a bunch of good books and a bunch that aren't so good, and um, but mostly good, I think. So he's dead. <laughs> also dead, Richard Goodwin. And this is a guy who I sort of had a crush on long, 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 long time ago. And then he up and married Doris Kearns, as in Doris Kearns Goodwin. She became more famous than he. She's the historian, wonderful historian. I mean, her books are fun to read. And she's fun. There's something delightful about her. And uh, so she she married him, Richard Goodwin. He was in the JFK White House. And when JFK was assassinated, LBJ took him in, so he served Johnson as well. And Richard Goodwin was responsible for writing one of the most powerful speeches important speeches given by a U.S. president, and that would be LBJ. And I've talked about this speech before. It was the speech in which this southern president from Texas, LBJ, started the process by which the Democratic Party extricated itself from the racists and from the South. And of course, it has, the party has been recovering <laughs> uh, ever, ever since. And this is, of course, then when the Republican Party opened its arms wide to all the bigots that the Democrats under Johnson said, we don't want anymore. And the speech is called his We Shall Overcome speech, which he gave to a joint session of Congress in, um, God, what would that have been, like 1965? And it was after Bloody Sunday in Selma on the bridge, right? So whenever that was, 64, 65. And he, Goodwin is the one who wrote this speech for, for Johnson, and it was such a powerful speech that it resulted in absolute immediate action from what had been a reluctant Congress, but given the power of the speech and the power of the president and his personality and his abilities on Capitol Hill, um, he managed to start the process by which the Voting Rights Act came into existence. And in fact, Richard Goodwin, besides writing the speech, which you should look up, uh, also helped draft the, uh, the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, so there you have it. Uh, Richard Goodwin, 
Well, I always had a crush on. I'm sorry. He also, by the way, wrote um, the speech that Al Gore gave in 2000 when he conceded the election to George W. Bush. A speech that sent me and millions of others into howls of despair. But it was a speech, if you think about it. Well, I'll, I'll quote the speech. Because given what has happened to our nation since, it seems quaint given what occupies the White House now and the party that fully supports and enables this grotesquerie. Al Gore, who of course, like Hillary Clinton, got lots more votes than George W. Bush. And it all came down to those hanging chads and whose votes count in Florida, you'll recall. And then to a Supreme Court decision that was political as hell and that installed George W. Bush as the president of the country who then led us into a war that we are still reeling from. And he didn't get as many votes. Not as many Americans wanted him as one. I mean, this is where this, this long thing began of Democrats winning the vote and losing the White House by virtue of that ridiculous electoral college that we are saddled with. Anyway, again, Richard Goodwin was there. And he wrote the speech for Al Gore. And in it, Gore said this. Well, he started by quoting Stephen, Stephen Douglas, you'll recall, from the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So we reached back into our history. Stephen Douglas lost to Abraham Lincoln. And in his concession speech, Douglas said this. This was a speech given in obviously 1860. He said this. Partisan feeling must yield to patriotism. And what he was telling his followers is, I know this isn't what you wanted. It ain't how you voted. But we have to put partisanship aside because our love of country, patriotism, is larger than our love of our party, the outcome we wanted. Right. So Gore quoted that and then... Richard Goodwin, who wrote it, embellished upon it. And here's what he said. Just as we fight hard when the stakes are high, we close ranks and come together when the contest is done. And while there will be time enough to debate our continuing differences, 
Now is the time to recognize that that which unites us is greater than that which divides us. While we yet hold and do not yield our opposing beliefs, there is a higher duty than the one we owe to political party. This is America, and we put country before party. It makes me want to weep. So that was said in the year 2000 by an honorable man. And now, 18 years later, we have Donald Trump in office, aided and abetted by a Republican Party and its leadership and its membership that clearly, clearly put party ahead of country. And it is such a horrific, change because once these you know once these territories are entered into once the lines are are erased once certain you know hardcore principles are abandoned i don't know that you get them back I don't know. And the Republican Party has done things like this over and over again. Their refusal to allow Barack Obama to have his choice for the Supreme Court seated. They stalled that for his last full year. And then were rewarded for this outrageous, recalcitrant, unpatriotic behavior, putting party over country, partisanship over tradition and principle. And instead, were able then to fill the seat themselves. Anyway, Richard Goodwin. My sympathies to his widow, who I adore. Uh, Milton has uh, said that he, um, oh, he has some favorite Leo Rostin quotes. Leo Rostin's the guy who wrote, who got the letter from Groucho Marx. And here is what Milton has sent. I learned that it is the weak who are cruel and that gentleness is to be expected only from the strong.
okay. You know what? That took me a while. Here's one that's sure fitting for these times. We see things as we are, not as they are. We see things as we are, not as through our, filtered through our, yes, our needs, our desires, our wants. That's why we're now living in this, you know, fact, fact-free world. Here's another Leo Rostin quote. A conservative is one who admires radicals centuries after they're dead. <laughs> oh, is that true? A conservative is one who admires radicals centuries after they're dead. Can we add grudgingly even then? Grudgingly admires Radicals centuries after they're dead. And then he also said this, which I have pointed out. Who hasn't pointed this out? But I'm sure he says it better than we do. Proverbs often contradict one another, as any reader soon discovers. The sagacity that advises us to look before we leap promptly warns us that if we hesitate, we are lost. And that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Thank you, Milton, as usual. I appreciate it. Uh, so there were more uh, primary elections yesterday, and a bunch of uppity women uh, apparently won seats. I mean, not won seats, won the nominations of the Democrats in those uh, states, all Southern, by the way, uh, to probably lose <laughs> in the general election. Um, you know, everybody's squawking about the fact that this uh, really impressive uh, woman in Georgia, this black woman in Georgia, uh, who won the Democratic nomination for the governor's race. Um, they, you know, the headlines are all saying, could become the first black female governor of any state in the country. And I'm thinking, man, I'll tell you what, that'll be my bellwether. If that woman, what's her name? Something Abrams. If that woman wins... Uh, in in November, then the blue wave will have turned out to be of tsunami proportions. Because after all, guys, we're talking about Georgia. And now everybody is saying, and she she ran to the left, Stacey Abrams. She ran to the left. In other words, she was running against another woman, a white woman. So those were the two choices. It was going to be a woman, a black woman and a white woman. The black woman ran away with it. And they had different, different ideas of how a Democrat could win statewide in Georgia. And the woman who lost was wanting to do uh, pretty much a Connor Lamb. That was what her, the way she was said 
one would win in a general election that you go after the old the the people that used to be democrats before of course lbj <laughs> uh, gave that wonderful speech that goodwin wrote and uh, the voting rights act and the, the democrats uh, immediately disappeared as the uh, absolutely dominant party uh, south of the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, all those Democrats became Republicans. And the few who hadn't became Republicans when Ronald Reagan came in. So a lot of people say the only way a Democrat's going to win, like in the district Connor Lamb won in, is to run like he ran and be moderate and appeal to people who vote Republican, even though they might be registered Democrats, blah, 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 pull them back into the field. So the woman who was espousing that did not win the nomination. And here's where primary voters sometimes make the wrong choices. I would think, my guess would be, that if you're talking about Georgia, <laughs> that you should maybe run like a Connor Lamb race. It's Georgia, for God's sake. However, I might be wrong. And uh, the Democratic primary voters will always put in the more lefty candidate, just as Republican primary voters always put in the most conservative. And so you get to a general election and there's nobody in the middle. So sometimes the smartest place to be is in the middle. The thing is, is that the voters of both parties never choose those moderates. And Connor Lamb would not have won a primary election to run in that race. You'll recall there was no primary. The voters didn't have a say. The Democratic voters didn't have a say in who would represent them. It was done by leadership. Party leadership put up their candidates in that race because it was a special election. And so you could say, I, I don't know. This We'll learn. We'll learn uh, in the course of... Uh, this midterm, what happens in November. But the woman who won, Abrams, thinks that the way you can win is by just getting out your people. So she is just relying on every black person of voting age in the state. Get them out. Get out every Democrat there is. And she's not into begging these per people that have gone to the dark side. She's not into getting them to come back. Now, I don't know. As I said, her winning the primary doesn't prove anything. It proves my point and the general point that in a primary, uh, it's the partisan voters that go and that means that for the Republicans the most conservative usually wins and for the Democrats the most uh, lefty uh, wins. One goes right, one goes left and the center remains free for the taking. So 
I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a pragmatist. I'm not ever uh, ideological when it comes to uh, the situation we are in now, which is we need to take back the Congress. So the only thing that's important to me is that the winners have D's after their name, <laughs> and they're the ones who could win the general. So we'll see. I think Democrats, uh, and then in Texas, uh, they, it was a gay uh, Hispanic woman who uh, won the right to uh, run as governor of Texas. She stands absolutely zero chance. And so often these women are uh, are running um, in 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 sort of you know who's the sacrificial lamb for the party. But if I said if this blue wave is as big as some people hope it will be, then some of these women are actually going to get in. Uh, another big you know sort of gets your attention is that a white guy who has been the majority leader of the Kentucky uh, State, I'm not sure if it's uh, State Assembly, I think. Might be State Senate. So this is a guy of, with real political power in Kentucky. It's a primary race. He apparently was ahead of, you know, I, I, there was another, I, he was a way ahead of the woman in the polls. Anyway, he got knocked off yesterday. Now that's in the Republican. So the Republican majority leader of the Kentucky State Legislative whatever house just lost in the primary to guess what? Obviously a Republican, but a school teacher who ran on the strength of those recent protests in Kentucky, and we saw similar ones, of course, in West Virginia and in uh, Arizona, I think, or Colorado. Those big square states, I can't get them right. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a clue, but it's interesting stuff. We have a call. Hi, caller. Hi, Lynn. This is Jeff from down in Green County. Hi. Um, Hi. I just I just wanted to say I really enjoyed your program yesterday with your sister, <laughs> and you guys were just, like, doing the casual thing and, and just, like, talking about, you know. Anything. Uh, yeah, just just keeping it light. Yeah. And it kind of felt like I was, like, ha hanging out with my family. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, you know, the way family do. So right. that's, that's one of the coolest aspects of yourself. Thank you. I just wanted to mention that. Thank but, you. But, uh... Uh, did you hear about, uh, we haven't heard the last of Don Blankenship. Yes, and I got to tell you, who would yeah. ever, now I'm rooting for him. Um, yeah, he, he's, he's running under the Constitution Party, and uh, he's challenging, um, there's a law, state law that says you're not allowed to do that, you know, to, it, if you've lost a primary in one party that, you know, you can't run a, in another party. It's called what? It's called like the sore loser, sore loser law or something. You can't then yeah, go in and yeah. undercut the, the guy who beat you. 
uh, in the general election. But there are ways around that. I don't know. So is Blank Blankenship is intending to do that, and he could prove to be a spoiler for the Republicans in West Virginia and thus ensure that Joe Manchin uh, gets back yeah. to the Senate. But is he going to be able to get around that law? I don't know. I don't know. He's fighting it in court. Yeah. So he's, you know, he, he's, he's fighting the constitutionality of the law, I guess. So, uh, well, I'm I rooting know. for I'm, but, I uh, never thought I'd say it. I'm rooting for Don Blankenship. Yeah, I'm kind of kind of doing so, too. You know, <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's odd, you know. What a vile but, uh, human being he is. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, he's all, I don't know. I, I, during our, our uh, primary in our governor race, you know, I thought, you know, Pat Wagner was pretty vile. What? <laughs> I mean, some of those commercials. Oh, uh, oh my I God. Tired of, I know he is vile uh, and he could be our governor. Yeah, I, I got so sick of hearing. I, I watch a lot of YouTube, okay, and like every other commercial that like you, you have commercials that you have to watch, you can't zip through. And every other one of those commercials was Paul Mango is a liberal phony and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> like, uh, I got so sick of seeing that. I was like hoping he would lose the primary just so I didn't have to put up with that kind of crap anymore. And understand uh, that the guy he's calling a liberal phony is a conservative Republican. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> if, if, if he goes, him, him and, and, and Wolf, you know, that that's going to be, he, he's just going to sling so much mud. It, it, I think this is going to be like one of the dirtiest campaigns for governor that, you know, the state's we've got to we've got to guys we've got to keep wolf in there because uh he yeah. is he is all that is standing between us and being mississippi um well, seriously he's, he's he's been trying to and this is something that affects you know me down here is he's been pushing to get um you know our natural gas taxed instead of this one time impact fee to get it taxed on a regular basis because, you know, it, it this drilling causes damage down here, yeah. you know, and other parts of the state, too, I mean, to our roads and to, you know, our environment and everything, and, you, you know, so the impact fee just says, hey, just pay once and you can do as much damage to the yeah. environment and our, our infrastructure as you want, and don't worry about it. No. Of course not. If you give your yeah. government to the Republicans, you're giving away your environment, your everything. You're giving everything away to corporate America. It's it's yeah. it's. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the reality. If you want the corporations yeah. to have total power, then give your government over to Republicans because that's that's what they stand for. Yep. That's what that's all they're about. All they're about. Yep. Helping, helping out the big business. Yeah. So, All right. Well, let's keep an eye on Blankenship and um, <laughs> that despicable guy who uh, I wish all the best I, to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, goodbye. Bye. Right, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Uh, Chuck has written, You mentioned how our hardcore principles have been abandoned. 
this crap about the deep state and spies embedded in the Trump campaign, you know, it is so injurious. It is so, it's such a lie. And well, okay, I'll just let you, irritates me, says Chuck, to the, to no end. This administration's mantra of, if you say it enough times, it'll be true, well, is despicable. It's also something that Hitler proved true. You say something that is patently false, and you repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat, and lo and behold, if it doesn't become the truth. Chuck writes, their complete disregard for the truth and unabashed willingness to lie is dangerous. Dangerous to this country. Dangerous to our society. It is, it is, one cannot overstate it enough. And then changing the subject, Chuck writes, people don't write handwritten letters anymore for many reasons, not the least of which is they aren't teaching cursive writing. Well, you could print it. <laughs> but that might be it. Mostly it's technology. When my daughter was asked to sign her driver's permit, she printed her name. She did not have, nor did she ever practice a cursive signature. You know, it's interesting. My son's uh, cursive signature looks like Looks like someone who's not comfortable with cursive. Yeah. It's the only time he does cursive. But there are people like Chuck's daughter who can't even write their name. Isn't that something? Oh my God, Aaron. You're looking. Aaron just sent me the most hideous picture of Richard Goodwin. And he said, was one of your crushes? Oh my God, I can't even look at that. That's not what he looked like. Oh my God. I swear he was broodingly dark and handsome in a craggy, Semitic kind of a way. And then he aged well. God, that's awful. Don't do that. That was horrible. Aaron, there are better pictures. Uh, okay. So Aaron says, not only did he send me this horrible picture I can't look at, he also says, all right, Bill Clinton's hands, yeah, Clinton's hands were so beautiful. I suppose they still are. He had the most gorgeous hands you've ever seen. And Jeff Goldblum, I understand. I never had the hots for Goldblum. We were friends. I, we were like brother and sister. We, believe me. Um, it would have been statutory rape. He was 17 when I, when he went to New York. But, yeah. He was a virgin. I remember him telling me about it. It was so, oh, he was so cute. I could just eat him up. But he, it was like he was my kid brother. Okay, Bill Clinton's hands, though, that's absolutely true. But uh, go, no, Goldblum, I no, we were just pals. Uh, no, I swear. And yeah, yes, Goodwin's eyebrows are like two Luna moths. They are. But that picture, I can't. I can't. I'm getting rid of it. I am trash. Delete. I cannot look at that. Henry writes, Lynn, I agree. 
I don't even know what you're agreeing with. <laughs> That's a problem with this show. Oh, about voting? I said, I, did I say something about it? Okay, I agree. The way to win is just simply get out the vote. Oh, you're talking about like, uh, yeah, like Stacey Abrams' idea of how you win. You get your people out. Uh, I mentioned to you that I live in Connor Lamb's district, and on election day I received a knock on the door at 5 p.m. from a Connor Lamb volunteer asking me if I needed a ride to the polls. That's how you win. He won narrowly because he was physically, literally picking people up and taking them to the polls. Well, if she gets that kind of a ground game going, who knows? Who knows? She's a very, very impressive woman. And a speaker in it every way. I mean, that's somebody who, if she does pull that off, would immediately be catapulted into national attention, without a doubt. Um, speaking of Bill Clinton, because we mentioned his hands, I just want to point out that he is persona non grata in the, among Democrats, most, almost all. I think now, and with reason. Uh, nobody wants him showing up to uh, campaign for them. Uh, first of all, we see how well he did with his uh, wife's campaign. And secondly, with the Me Too movement <laughs> off and running, he's toxic. No Democrat wants to, you know, be with those, those beautiful, touchy-feely hands of his. No. Nah. So it's interesting. And even she is toxic for a lot of... I know Claire McCaskill, like in Missouri, said, do not come... I mean, she is... I don't... The kiss of death would be uh, Hillary Clinton speaking up on her behalf or anything like that. So things change, huh? Things change. And just a quick uh, little... Uh, um, I, I just have to respond to this. The, it was, about, I think, about two days ago that I left this building and was walking Van uh, 7th, I think, and I saw a, a woman um, in, you know, Muslim woman, all in, in black, um, walking on the other side. And I, I just, I noted her, and then I thought, Oh, my God. I was on my way to a restaurant. I was starving there. I, and I thought, oh, my God, it's Ramadan. And that woman hasn't eaten since, I don't know, you probably get up really early. You get up before the sun rises and eat. You must. Because in this longest time of the year with daylight savings time, you, you know, see how long it takes for the sun to go down now? If you're Muslim, and that means hundreds and hundreds of millions, billions of people in the world right now who are Muslim are not for one month eating from sunrise to sundown. That is one grueling test of faith, <laughs> of adherence to your faith. Jays. And you gotta wonder. I mean, that's so. Anyway, what brings this up is the Danish Minister of Immigration 
a woman, I'm looking at her now, she looks a little bit like uh, Megyn Kelly. She has said that in their country, this adherence to the religious practice of fasting during Ramadan is a danger to all of us, she told her fellow Danes. She said, especially if someone is, for instance, a Muslim driving a bus. Well, I'm thinking, it's not that they don't sleep. I mean, being hungry doesn't make you a bad bus driver. I don't, what the hell is she talking about? I've often wondered, there have been, uh, you know, athletes who have to play and you can't drink water. I, I don't even understand how that's possible. But as for it being a danger to the rest of us that Muslims are enduring this, uh, this religious uh, fast, you know, I, you know, Jews do that one biggie on Yom Kippur, which is 24, 25 hours actually just to be safe with no food, no drink, no water, nothing can pass your lips. And that is tough. That is tough. It, your body starts reacting, mostly from dehydration, I would think. But so Muslims, this is something they do that, I mean, I'll tip my hat to them, gee whiz. But suggesting that then that they create a danger is really repulsive. I just wanted to say that. I just, you see a Muslim these days, just remember. And the thing is, is in Denmark, because they're north enough, there there's only like a, a, a five, six hour window where a Muslim can eat for a month. I was stunned when I was in uh, St. Andrew, Scotland. I don't, it never really ever got dark. So I guess Muslims, y you can't. I mean, at some, you can't fast for a month, literally. I don't know. So anyway, I just wanted to get that into the mix and say I found it really repulsive. My sense of Muslims and fasting and Ramadan is one of... Uh, I mean, I, total respect, <laughs> amazing respect for what they do. Wow. Okay, that's it for me. I'm. Uh, I'll be here tomorrow. By the way, I'm. I'm. I'm leaving on Friday. I, I won't be here on Friday. I'm taking a four-day weekend. So tomorrow's the last show till next Tuesday, and um, I hope you'll join me. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.